Welcome to the Feeling Bookish Podcast. I'm Rob Fay in Portland, Oregon. I've got my main man, Roman Sivkin, in New York City today. And um, we're kind of pleased to have our sound engineer, Heston Hoffman. He's with us usually, but now he's actually going to be, uh, he's going to jump in here today and and uh, talk about the book that we're going to tackle today. So um, Heston, you're doing double duty. I'm sure you can uh, chew gum and walk down the street at the same time, as my father used to say. <laughs> yeah, um, we'll see. <laughs> okay. So, so today we're looking at you know, frankly, kind of an unusual book in and of itself, and I think an unusual book within the scope of, of this particular writer's uh, body of work. And this is J.M. Kutzea, and the book is The Master of Petersburg. And so um, this is a novel that is uh, about a guy named Dostoevsky. Maybe you've heard of him, uh, a famous Russian writer. And it focuses on a very, very particular period in the life of Dostoevsky. He had been living abroad uh, in Germany, um, where he developed a pretty healthy gambling problem, um, which is a pretty interesting thing in and of itself. And he returns to St. Petersburg um, because of the death of his stepson, who was um, quite a young man, I think in his 20s. Uh, and so that sort of puts us uh, kind of in the mind of Dostoevsky or the character Dostoevsky in the middle of grief. And, you know, um, I think that's probably the easiest thing to say about this book is that it is a, um, a book about grief. Um, you know, Heston, I'll, I'll sort of throw you into the fire first here. Um, you know, we've talked a bit and, um, you know, this, this book is, is a strange book and it's a strange book. If you sort of line it up, um, with Kutsaya's other books, um, how, how are we to think about this book from, from your perspective, being a, a sort of fellow countryman of Kutseya's? <laughs> well, yeah, it is interesting because the to begin with, the setting is different to a lot of the other books. Oh, well, yeah, like most of his books are based, his early books at least, are based in South Africa or, or in, you know, places that resemble South Africa. So it was interesting for me to go on this sort of, you know, ride to Russia. <laughs> um, the... The interesting thing is he, he has written other books or at least one other book where he deals with a writer um, who was who really lived. Like there's a book called Foe that he wrote where he writes about um, Daniel Defoe and he take it's kind of a look at the Robinson, Robinson Crusoe story. Sure. Um, yeah, but, but yeah, it was interesting to me because it, it seemed... The writing style seemed a lot more descriptive than some of his other books. Like, you know, he's, he has this really efficient writing quality that he, you know, he, he's so careful about, about every word that he uses, right? He has this, like, this super efficient writing style and his novels are all very short, really. And, um, and, and so this seemed more descriptive to me. Yeah. And I have to admit, this is one of the reasons I've, I, I've, this is the first book I've read of him and I've always been somewhat intimidated because in flipping through other novels of his, the sparseness of the prose, a kind of cool distant efficiency, you know, right. so to speak. And, you know, the thing that also struck me, I mean, the guy won the Nobel Prize for Literature. So, I, you know, I, I might be speaking out of turn here, but I feel like in the United States, his profile is, is still quite low. And if you look at the other English writers or English-speaking writers who've won the Nobel and who are still alive, um, Alice Munro from Canada, Bob Dylan, uh, and also Toni Morrison, I feel like he's still rather, you know, under the radar. I mean, certainly not 
in universities or uh, among um, you know other novelists and so forth. But there's just a strangeness about this guy. Yeah, he's you know, he's you very know? cerebral. I think it's very cerebral. That's right. that's that's one of his strengths and also one of his weaknesses, right? Um, he even though this book, I'm sorry, I interrupted you, Rob, but this book is really infused with not just things you know that the mind can chew on ideas but also heavy undercurrents of emotion right. and feeling but yeah. they're undercurrents even though they do burst to the surface quite a lot in this book but there's still this dark sort of uh layer underneath the prose which the prose is beautiful by the way it's all like you said it's austere rob it's definitely um it has some flourishes here and there, but it's very even uh, as far as the style goes. It doesn't, you know, just burst into this lyrical thing suddenly and then condenses into some sort of cerebral thing. It's kind of it's very even throughout. But um, but don't you feel that although he's clearly exploring the terrain of grief and the kind of the sense of being condemned, right, which is a very Dostoevsky reality, considering his life, holy crap. Um, I still feel like there's a kind of like a cool distance that is somewhat off-putting to me. Um, well, he actually, I think he writes this in, see, I, I was really taken with this book. I read it uh, first time, I read it maybe about seven to ten years ago. And um, like some of our Twitter people also noted, like, oh, I think I read that, but I don't remember type of one of those books. <laughs> And I think what what you pointed out about the grief element is one of those books that, like most great books, if you read them at the wrong time for yourself, that is, at yeah. the wrong time, not the wrong time, but, you know, it has to be the right time to read it. And the right time, uh, you don't choose the right time, it chooses you. So, for instance, I lost my mother about two weeks ago. It wasn't, you know, unexpected. It's, you know, she's been sick for seven years. But it happened, you know, I, I lost a mm -hmm. parent and I was grieving as I was reading this book and I really connected to that point, to that part of it, of, of this grief. And first of all, let's, let's, can I just back up a little bit and just give, give our listeners just an idea of the novel if you haven't read it. Please. Um, it's basically uh, reimagining a, a, a time in Dostoevsky's life when he was just beginning to write or was thinking about writing The Demons which is a book that is closely, closely tied to, to the Master of Petersburg, to the book we're, we're talking about, because it's not only in his thoughts, but it's also in the prose. Uh, there's a lot of possession going on. But anyway, to, to just back up a little bit, so he's, you know, he lost this uh, stepson, which actually in real life the stepson outlived him. So Kotze here uses this, you know, it's a fictional, it's a fictional account of a fictional Dostoevsky writing a, a real book, which is also a fiction. So there's a lot of interesting layers here. Um, and Kotze is known to be playing a lot of these metaphysical games throughout his career. Uh, if, I've read only one other novel by Kotze, and that's Elizabeth Costello. It's about a celebrated aging Australian writer. <laughs> you know, so it's about <laughs> a writer. It's very metaphysical. The writer, this Costello writer, uh, in her youth, wrote The House on Eccles Street, which is a novel that retells James Joyce's Ulysses from the perspective of Molly Bloom. So there's a lot of these weird layers of playing with writers, kind of entering their heads. They're fictional writers, they're real writers, they're writing fiction, they're writing nonfiction. 
So there's a lot of this mix that I, I really, really enjoy and that Cotea handles beautifully, I must say, in both these novels, but in the, especially the, the Master of Pittsburgh that I'm, you know, we're talking about right now. Um, so he comes back. There's a dead stepson. He mourns for him. He tries to sort of kind of almost resurrect him by be, almost becoming him in a way. Um, he, he stays in his room that he was renting from this uh, um, landlady. The landlady has a young daughter. He refers to himself as the eternal lodger, Dostoevsky, that is the fictional Dostoevsky in this book. And, of course, the eternal lodger is also uh, a, a character in Dostoevsky's own, in the real Dostoevsky's own book, The Demons, uh, in which Stavrogin, one of the people there, in the, one of the characters, also is a lodger, and also as a landlady with a 12-year-old daughter. And this, and we'll, we'll probably talk about much more about that, hopefully later. But it's a very kind of parallel to Dostoevsky's lies, but we're inside Dostoevsky's head as he's trying to come up with these fictions and also dealing with this fictional reality of his stepson being dead. Um, and, and really dealing with the, what Dostoevsky himself called the major problem of our age which is this nihilistic um, uh, sort of worldview that has that has kind of impregnated Russia at that at that time, uh, with people like um, like uh, you know Turgenev, Fathers and Sons, the novel, which was written in 1862, a little bit earlier. One of the one of the major characters in that novel is a nihilist. So nihilism and the whole sort of invasion of the Western post-French Revolution kind of ideas into Russia and just completely colliding with the the Slavophilic soul of Russia, you know, the, the one that the, the Orthodox Church, the Tsar uh, and God sort of being, this whole worldview being collided into this iceberg of, of Westernism and more freedom and um, atheism, uh, nihilism, all these things that kind of threatened to topple uh, what's going on, what, you know, the, the regime in Russia, not just the regime, the political regime, but really the intellectual, the ideological uh, hold of, of old Russia. And so really that's, that's, that's the extent of the, of the novel, really. He meets one of these uh, leaders, uh, in fact, the leader, Nichayev, um, and he deals with him, he deals with the police a little bit, and it's got echoes of all of Dostoevsky's novels, right? There's, there's an echo of the notes from the underground, of the idiots, um, of the brothers, even the brothers Karamazov, but really mainly the demons, because this is the time when Dostoevsky, in real life, the real Dostoevsky, was gathering all these materials for to write the demons. So I hope I kind of set the picture a little bit of, of what the novel involves. There's really not much going on in all the plot wise yeah um, I, I would almost I would almost sort of uh, that was a fabulous uh, impassionate kind of uh, summation in a way but I would almost push back and say you know Roman I think you're you're infusing some of your own background and knowledge uh, into a book that is still feels very sort of uh, narrow and like I'm looking through a, a, a tiny slit of a window. Um, yeah, see, I completely disagree, Rob, because you know why? I don't, I don't know if you, I don't know if you picked this up, but Kotea's own son uh, died. He was 23 years old in 1989. He fell from a balcony in somewhat mysterious circumstances. Wow. So okay, about a few years. I, I did miss that. That's important. Yeah, it's yeah, it's. I mean, it's crucial. It's crucial. Yeah. That's what made my grief 
even though it's different, uh, connect with sort of the grief that's that the writer was that Kotsaya was putting into this book, and maybe you didn't pick up on it because again the timing of, of reading is so important. But as I pointed out before. Uh, and I, I didn't pick up on it that much when I read it first, but now it really spoke to me. This book it really opened up. Right. And Dostoevsky's own son outlived him, right? So, so well, the stepson, yes, the stepson outlived yeah, him. This, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, did outlive is, him. Yeah, so it's this interesting yeah. intersection there. Yeah. So yeah, I think Kotsaya was just using that as a as a as a sort of a, a way of of sort of maybe dealing with his own grief. I mean, he certainly put a lot of his own grief into this book. I, I, I don't know if you can read this book without feeling that to some extent. But I, I really felt it, you know, because I was, I was very familiar with that emotion because I was, I was going through it myself um, in a different way. Because losing a son, uh, losing a child is, has got to be one of the worst things that can happen to anyone. Um, you know, it's normal to lose a parent. That's the, the nature of things. Um, but losing your progeny is especially at a young age like that uh, uh, is is a scarring you know life scarring kind of uh, ordeal and i think kotsea really worked it into this novel with a uh, plenty of guilt because notice that the guilt that dostoevsky feels at pavel's death that maybe he wasn't there for him enough they was didn't love him enough or something like that um, it, it comes, it kind of bounces back and, and doubles back. And, and because the fictional Dostoevsky in this book knows that he's really collecting material for a book, for writing. Right. Uh, all this grief, all these in incidents that happened to him, he, uh, he notices details in the book that are not particularly important to the plot or anything like that. But you can tell that he's gathering these details for his fiction that he's right, right. right, you know? So, so this, this demonic uh, nature of writing is definitely revealed here. And, um, and uh, you can really feel that in the end and see that in the end, that he's, he's, he's basically transmuting his personal grief into uh, his work. And he feels horrible about that because in a way it's, it's, it's uh, cannibalism. In a way it's like, it's... Um, uh, necrophilia. It's like, you know, it's somehow loving the dead to the point where you bring them back into your work, but is it doing justice to the dead? Is it really paying respect? It's probably not. So he feels right. this guilt that he can't get rid of. Um, yeah, that's, you know. so t that's so true. And that same guilt bleeds into all of his other relationships in the novel, right? Because yeah. you know, he has the same feelings about the um, his landlady, you know, the woman that he's lodging with. Right. And her daughter, right? So, you know, everyone he meets, he, he has this sort of, like, sort of um, vampirish. <laughs> right, uh, right. Quality, and look, right? he's an aging, he's an aging writer. I mean, he's 49 at this, at this, in this book, and at this time of his life in 1869, uh, which is not too far away from my age and, you, you know, Rob's age, <laughs> right? <laughs> so even though we don't feel that way because times have changed a little bit now, it's 49 is not really considered old. But back back then, 49 was was old. So he was kind of sort of kind of losing his powers. He's a little bit blocked in this book as far as writing. And what does he do? He, like you said, uh, Heston, he vampirically kind of, he, he this 12-year-old daughter right. of the landlady, he almost like, he almost, he doesn't rape her. 
though there's a rape scene in the demons that involves a 12 year old girl um he doesn't do that there's there's some erotic thoughts about it but it's it's sucking up this young energy for this aging writer to be able to continue writing and in fact the whole juxtaposition of generations the older generations and the the younger generation and their clash is really i think one of the key elements here all right definitely yeah especially with um nechayev's involvement right because he he's all about um right right he doesn't he say something in the novel about oh like once he reaches um 30 35 is going to shoot himself he's going to shoot himself right? right right yeah and it's interesting because because Dostoevsky, when he was uh, Nichayev's age, he was similar to Nichayev, right? He 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 participated in the Petrashevsky circle, for which he was famously uh, almost shot, you know, in mock execution type of deal, uh, and sent to Siberia. Um, so it's it, and then he 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 doesn't change, you know. What was the saying? There was a saying uh, years ago, like it takes twenty years for. A Democrat to become a conservative or something, or liberal to become a conservative. Uh, it's probably less than twenty years now, <laughs> you know. But but he, he so he flips. He flips from being this kind of radical youth to post Siberia to being this this kind of defender of of, of the old regime in a way, and of of uh, you know. Though it's with Dostoevsky, it's never black and white. It's always right. a mixture. Right. He's he's too complex. He's too complex to be reduced to uh, to some some formula like that. But he's definitely a pushback now, as he's older, against this this younger generation that just wants to destroy everything and rebuild from new. And he's like, no, we can't do that. You know, just as you know, I've been there. You can't do that. But there's that that constant tension between youth and age. Um, sometimes. It's it's almost unbearable when he with this, this these erotic thoughts about this girl, and and even the landlady feels it. You know, you're gonna you, you basically she says because they sleep together, and she says you you're, you're I think you're using me just to get to my daughter, and right. she's not wrong. You know, you know? and and uh, Heston, you know, you and I were able to we had a a great uh, dinner earlier in the week, and uh, we were chatting a little bit about the book, and and you were kind of pointing out that. Um, if I remember, in some of Kutseya's other books, there is this sort of theme of uh, a bit of a, a male, older, leering at at kind of, uh, you know, younger female characters, a kind of right. Lolita sort of element. Because, you know, this has been something that many people have pointed out with uh, Nabokov, that there is this, uh, the, the characters, you know, have this, this interest in, you know, prepubescent or teenage girls. And there's always this aspect that, kind of floats around and Nabokov in interviews would just brush it off, you know, look, this is fiction, this is, you know, whatever. Um, but but you you found this repeated in a few other books? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. A lot of his books seem to revolve around old perverts. I guess that's what I was gonna disgrace, say, Heston. Right? Thank you. <laughs> You know, yeah. I believe the word per, per, perversion is is also one of the key words in this book. It's right. it's he uses it. He actually uses it. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, so it's definitely a theme in, in some of Kutsia's novels as well. Um, Waiting for the Barbarians has that um, that same quality of uh, disgrace. It basically centers around a story of a, uh, a lecturer who takes advantage of one of his students. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's a lot of that in, in his other novels. So, um, mm. I, 
the funny thing about Kutsia is, is um, I do think he's this really important writer, and obviously, uh, I think South Africans, especially South Africans who care about literature, are very, um, you know, hold him hold him in a very high regard. Uh, but I rarely actually enjoy reading any of his novels. Right, they're all very. <laughs> uncomfortable and uh as you were saying earlier there's a lot of subtext there right so it's it's you feel like you're reading something very important and you can really appreciate the the quality of his writing but but it's always an uncomfortable experience right reading his right but is that is that necessarily a bad thing you know maybe not not just no, i, I mean i think so i mean i'm definitely going to read something a lot more light-hearted now, <laughs> now that i mean i think i think he uh in his jerusalem prize a speech that he got i think in 87 or something like that um he he talks about uh, south african south african literature and how the, the ideology of south africa and you know apartheid uh, um has twisted people's people's uh, perspectives and so human relations are, are are natural under that kind of under those kinds of conditions they're 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 pressurized they're distorted they're they're not uh, not normal i don't know if that's the right word to use and so he basically uh, he he condemned south african literature for being stunted um he got a lot of flack for that um, in fact, he got a lot of flack from the left uh, because he he's, he he gets accused basically of what you were just saying, Heston, is that he he writes about you know this tortured inner consciousness of of people, but he he fails, according to this criticism, to write about their their material causes of that distortion. So he's being accused from the left, which is kind of weird, but he's being actually it's kind of typical of the left, but uh, you know of, of being of, of, of being a humanist, of being somebody who doesn't care about the political and material you know Marxist kind of critique of you know of, of not of, of history or, or human interactions um, and and one of his one of his sort of um, big problems as a writer for solving is how does a writer deal with ideology the, the one that he swims in he basically because he was swimming in this ideology he was not but you know, not not necessarily endorsing it but he was living in south africa he was it was like water around him you know he was like right. a fish in water because everything was determined by that but those power relations and so how do, how does one deal how does a, a writer a great writer deal with something like that without sort of giving into that ideology or just protesting right. too much about it or making it too obvious. And and I think he he does that. I think he succeeds in this book at least in 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 showing how how human relations under you know Taoism and the orthodox sort of mentality is 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 pressurized and, and shaped or disfigured in a way, and so you have these weird relationships where, where young kids are prostituted, uh, where, where people are poor, uh, are and mean to each other, and then you have the nihilist Nietzscheev who just basically says, you know what, terrorism is fine in our, uh, you know, and anything to justify the ends, you know, the means justify the ends, right. uh, whatever the expression is, the end justifies the means. Um, and so it's it's kind of reproduced in this 1869 Russia setting, 
what he, what Kotze himself was experiencing in his native land. Uh, and again, not literally, obviously, not, it's very subtle, but I think it's there because all of these relationships are skewed. Dostoevsky's relationship with his uh, stepson, with his dead stepson, you know, he goes back a little bit into the history of it, and it's obviously uh, not a very, very healthy relationship. Uh, Dostoevsky's relationship with the current land, landlady, not very healthy, with her daughter, not healthy. It's just, you know, it's just everything is, is in this kind of pressure cooker of ideologies. And, and when you come down to feelings and actual human emotions, they're all distorted because of that pressure cooker environment. You know, and I, I really felt it. And I agree with you, Heston, because I, I do, when I first read that book, I had that feeling of like, well, it's interesting, very, very much food for thought. But as far as me enjoying the novel, it wasn't quite there. But I also don't think that this novel is one to enjoy. You yeah. don't read, I don't think you read Kotze in general for entertainment or for, <laughs> or, for or, or to have a good weekend reading a book. Like yeah. you said, it's uncomfortable. Yeah, and maybe I mean, they're, they're maybe that's the point, novels, right? Maybe maybe that's the point, you yeah. know? Yeah, no, I think I think it is. You know, they're, they're such short novels, and yet they're so difficult to get through. Sometimes, you know, it's like you can't believe you've taken <laughs> two weeks to read a hundred and fifty-page novel. You know, uh, but I right. think that's why it's because it's uncomfortable. It's difficult to to read it all in one sitting, right? Right. Um, yeah. But why is now we have to go a step further? and ask why is it uncomfortable to us, particularly at this time in our, in our lives? You know, why is it uncomfortable to read this? Um, and that's a question maybe that I can't quite answer right now, <laughs> except, to yeah. say, you know, except to say that um, dealing with grief is never a comfortable thing. Uh, and I, again, I, because, maybe because I was going through this grief as I was reading it, I, it was palpable to me, the fact that he lost his son. And I know it's a fiction, but and he knows it's a fiction, but and he knows that he's using his son's death to write this book. You know, is is it's an opportunism almost. You know, so and he expresses it through this fictional Dostoevsky's guilt of of Pavel's death, of his stepson's death, and how he's transmuting it into his own fiction, into his own you know to make money to pay his debts, uh, into a kind of this material existence. Um, but he's using this, these spiritual things, he's transmuting them into this material thing that, and he's feeling guilty about it because he should, you know? Yeah. You know, um, I'd like to, I'd like to pick up on something that you, you started, uh, down a road, very interesting, uh, train of thought, Roman. And you were talking about how, so for Kutseya to be writing, um, and, and to be to grow up within the apartheid regime, that that this you know even if you are you know morally and spiritually opposed to it, the the pressure on the individual is from these you know social forces is very very significant. And mm -hmm. I, I want to tie it into, and I think you're dead on. And the definitive biographer in the English speaking world of Dostoevsky is is Joseph Frank, and I encourage. Everyone who, who wants to know more about Dostoevsky's life to read um, a writer in his time. It's an abridgment of uh, Joseph Frank's three volumes on Dostoevsky, and it's fascinating. But what really distinguishes his approach to biography is that unlike previous biographies of Dostoevsky or even literary bios in general, he really tries to avoid um, uh, a, a huge focus on the private life of Dostoevsky. He really feels to understand Dostoevsky's books, which is 
what we should care about is really to understand these complex political uh, radical uh, ideologies that were happening in in Russia throughout the 19th century, which you were alluding to, Roman. And I want to read a little snippet from the preface to this book, which really sort of emphasizes that. And I also love this little snippet for the reason that it there's a little shout out to David Foster Wallace. And I know uh, Roman and Heston that we're all aligned on, you know, this is a great writer. And, and I feel like also lately he's been treated as if he's a uh, a juvenile writer uh, for adolescent boys and should be dismissed. And the call out that Joseph Frank has for uh, DFW is quite interesting. But um, so Frank writes, much less space, meaning in his biography, is thus given in my books to the details of Dostoevsky's private life and much more to the clash of various ideas prevailing during the period in which he lived. The most perceptive reader of my first four volumes, the much lamented and gifted novelist and critic David Foster Wallace remarked that, quote, Elman's, ja uh, Elman's James Joyce, which is the classic bio of James Joyce, pretty much the standard by which most literary buyers are measured, doesn't go into anything like Frank's detail on ideology or politics or social theory. And, and then he continues, this is not to say that I ignore Dostoevsky's private life, but it remains linked to other aspects of his era that provide it with much larger significance. Indeed, one way of defining Dostoevsky's originality as a writer is to see in it this ability to integrate the personal with the major socio-political and cultural issues of his day. So um, that's what kind of got me excited about this particular biography. And, you know, I had some ideas that there was, you know, resistance to the czar and, um, you know, the, the condition of the peasants um, in Russia, uh, maybe even still t t today, um, <laughs> is, is quite, you know, it was quite awful. And, and of course, in, in Western Europe at the time, there was, uh, you know, Marxism was starting to, to percolate, etc. Um, so, so there's an interesting parallel um, with Dostoevsky and Kutseya, this, this idea, and you've alluded to this, Roman, before we started recording, of... Um, you know, this, this autocratic regime um, that, that affected both Dostoevsky and Kutseya uh, and is something, you know, I don't have any personal experience with, luckily. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that's an interesting uh, right. well, kind I mean, of insight into all this. Yeah, I mean, Dostoevsky was very, very much uh, a, a part of uh, his country's, you know, Russia's uh, sort of intellectual life at that time. And uh, Nechayev, who's a character in this book that we're reading, The Master of Petersburg, was a real uh, you know, revolutionary. Uh, the Nechayev circle, uh, they um, famously had a... Nechayev murdered this, uh, this guy, Ivan Ivanov, after which uh, Dostoevsky vowed to write uh, a pamphlet or something against Nechayev and his ideology. And in this book, in The Master of Petersburg, there is another Ivanov who is probably a police spy, is supposed to spy on Dostoevsky. Um, I guess we have to, I, I'm getting a little confused, I don't know about you guys, but when I talk about Dostoevsky as the real writer, Dostoevsky yeah. is the character. So I'm, <laughs> no, maybe I'll, um, yeah. I'll make sure that we, I, I, I'm getting confused, so I'll make sure there's, I'll just say it. So the, the fictional Dostoevsky in this book meets Nechayev and, and has a lot of arguments with him. Nechayev is this, this, uh, uh, murky figure in the novel, 
uh, in real life, he was, you know, he was also a murky figure, I guess. But Dostoevsky really hated him. He really, really hated him in real life. Uh, he vowed to write something against him. And what he wrote actually became The Demons, uh, at least in part. He, 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 he started writing this kind of polemical, political uh, pamphlet, pamphleteer type of uh, thing against, against the Chayev. And he was also writing another novel. And then he can and sort of fuse them together. To make the demons, um, but in the fictional Dostoevsky here that we're talking about, the Master of Petersburg, there's an, another Ivanov who gets also killed, probably by Nechayev. So there's a lot of parallels between, you know, real life, uh, 1860s and 50s, and and this setting of the novel here. I mean, there's a lot of parallels. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, I can just sort of add um, from the Frank biography around the time of 1869, Frank notes that Dostoevsky's notebooks are filled with references to Nechayev. Yes. And he was daily pouring over the flood of rumor and speculation. And then Frank uh, kind of concludes with an interesting uh, observation. He says, after all, had he, meaning Dostoevsky, not practically predicted the outcome of radical ideas when he created Raskolnikov? Uh, Necheyev and his group had merely drawn the conclusions and taken the actions that in crime and punishment, Dostoevsky had only imagined as extreme and, quote, fanatic possibilities. Right. Um, so, yeah. And, and, you know, it's, it's actually interesting to, to uh, read some of the descriptions of, of these, you know, fanatical young Russian men in the novel. And just to think about, um, you know, the fanaticism uh, of you know, whether it's white nationalists today in the U.S. and in the West or um, of, uh, you know, Islamic influenced terrorists, this kind of thing. Um, it's this idea. And, and he also um, there's a there's a passage where he's talking to the um, the police commissioner and he's trying to get the he's requesting the papers of his stepson. And they really kind of enter into this discussion where the character Dostoevsky starts saying, you know, don't you agree that basically a spirit, a demon, mm. you know, en enters these young men and they become incredibly radicalized. And it, it really made me think of, you know, again, uh, a white nationalist or someone in ISIS who, you know, suddenly just becomes infused with this, this certainty. Um, and it is almost a, uh, a possession. And, you know, Heston, Heston, you and I share a certain background with religion and, you know, there is this, we've been around religious people who, you know, have the spirit, so to speak, or whatever, and it, it's, it's a righteousness that cannot be rationalized with. Um, right, yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, I agree. <laughs> yeah, I well, I... much to add, but I agree. I mean, I, I, yeah. I was raised in a religious household, thank God. <laughs> uh, so I, I, but you know what, I'll throw in another little nugget that I, I, um, I found... Yeah, maybe a few months ago, and then it struck me as 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 uh, as relevant here because this whole you know possession, uh, uh, demons uh, taking over, so to speak. Um, uh, my favorite living media theorist, Douglas Rushkoff. Oh yeah, I love him. Yeah, he's cool. yeah, he's great. So he had this little thing, um, this little talk where he mentions that um, algorithms today's algorithms, you know, Google, Facebook, all these. Uh, things that are part of a social fabric right now are are these algorithms are in a way demons because what what do what do they do they do exactly what demons do they exploit human weaknesses to use sort of against us we give them this this entry we you know, we sort of provide our the vessel 
by giving our information, uh, you know, basically losing our privacy. And these demons then sort of inhabit us and use our weaknesses against us to make us do things that we don't want to do. We don't want to buy that freaking, you know, 17 pounds of whatever, you know, we, you know, we don't want to, you know, go on Facebook and interact on Facebook and give away our privacy, but we, yet we do because it's this kind of this weird possession, this demonic thingy. So I really liked his, his equivalency of uh, demons and being possessed with algorithms, which are very much part of our current ideological battles, right? I mean, Facebook's role in the election, et cetera, et cetera. And, and it's probably going to get worse before it's going to get better. Right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, Rush, Rushkoff is pretty interesting, and he he was yeah. an early Silicon Valley person, and he's really kind of turned his back on, and and on that yeah, he's got, he's culture. Got, yeah, he's, he's got a whole approach that's called Team Human, where he's trying to sort of um, reinforce our, or or protect our our humanness against um, the machine or whatever, against some sort of a algorithmic manipulation. You know, uh, very interesting guy. But I I just thought it was interesting. Uh, equivalency between uh, algorithms and demons since the, the demonic possession and demons in general are just so important in this book um and really uh, as i was saying to you before rob before we start recording it, this really is a two-part episode you guys because we're going to talk about kotsea now we're talking about dostoevsky already but we're going to read the demons the actual dostoevsky novel for our next episode and we're going to continue this conversation because it's all going to be very similar yeah, very, very similar thing. And in a way, hey, I just thought about this. In a way, Kotsea is um, a vessel for some sort of a weird Dostoevsky demon that inhabits him. And he writes this book as a demon of Dostoevsky's because it's a very... It's a very Dostoevsky-like book, right? There's a lot yeah. of the Dostoevsky themes, a lot of that feeling. I mean, Notes from the Underground is very much like this book. Um, nihilism, it's all in there. Um, so it's a double possession in a way. He writes about being as, as a possessed writer and also writes about how writing is basically possession. Uh, you know? Yeah, you know, um, writers who write books about writers, um, it's a tricky thing. I mean, it's it's tricky for us to even in talk about it and to sort of parse out, you know, the 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 life of Dostoevsky versus the fictional representation, etc. Um, these books are very attractive for those of us who are kind of in the game, so to speak. I know they're very attractive to uh, people in the university, in the academy, which which I think is worth pointing out that could say, if I'm not mistaken, is. Really, he's made his entire living um, being a professor of literature uh, in the UK and uh, uh, South Africa, and now I think in Australia. Um, he's probably making money off his books now, but I'm assuming for a while, um, you know, he was getting critical acclaim, but not not raking in the dough. Um, I mean, I, I personally, I, I geek out on these kind of books um, because I also love literary biographies. Um, you know, one book that comes to mind that we, we could have a very similar discussion about is um, the Irish writer uh, Colm Toybean. He wrote a book called The Master, interestingly enough. Mm -hmm. It was about, about the life of Henry James. And again, uh, you know, working with the structure of Henry James's life, but, you know, what, what uh, Toybean, I think, was interested in was we, we know that Henry James was basically celibate his whole life. And 
So he's, you know, he's living at the end of the 19th century. And, and so Toybin is sort of speculating that um, we don't have any evidence in letters is that uh, Henry James was gay. And because of social pressures at the time, you know, couldn't couldn't be who he was. And so the novel sort of plays with, you know, some of these male relationships he had, et cetera. But it also kind of geeks out about, you know, I mean, I want to know how writers wrote the stuff. writing life. Yeah, yeah yes, the writing yes, life. Yes, yes, know? absolutely. Absolutely. And I feel like, uh, you know, Kutsia isn't giving us a ton of that. Um, that's that's not. Well, Rob, at the end, he does. At the end, he does. Oh, are, are end... you are you assuming I didn't read the book? <laughs> <laughs> well, at the end, at the end, the ending is really fascinating. I, I've ending... changed since high school, Roman. <laughs> well, the ending, he what he does, he 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 writes in Pavel's diary. He adds entries. He starts writing a story, um, and and then he reflects on this writing and how uh, what what does it mean to write and to use somebody's life for writing. Um, so he he definitely does. The, the, the ending is very meta meta sort of writerly. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I think I think it's just uh, I think it's a it's a in a in a strange way it's a perfect little book. I would there's not a wasted word. Could say as a stylist, as a master stylist, he knows what he's doing with words. Uh, he does not waste any. Uh, he's very. I mean, here let me. Um, you know, you know, Kotsea, not Kotsea, Dostoevsky, the real Dostoevsky was famously an epileptic, right? Um, he he would have these uh, seizures and uh, would fall down. And there's, of course, a lot of parallels between falling as in, as in falling from grace and falling uh, as in falling in a seizure uh, that Kotsea draws here. It's, it's really... It's really about uh, partly about the fall of man in a way, uh, in, you know, with the big the big F. Uh, but here's here's a description of uh, not a, a kind of a, a summation of what these seizures mean to this fictional Dostoevsky, at least. And I'm quoting: "They, meaning the seizures, are not visitations. Far from it. They are nothing. Mouthfuls of his life sucked out of him as if by a whirlwind that leaves behind not even a me- memory of darkness." I mean, it's not great. That's just great writing. Uh, and it goes against the grain of uh, what a lot of people believe about Dostoevsky, that his epilepsy was somehow you know, contributed to his, uh, his mastery, to his, uh, you know, it gave him visions, it gave him some, some, some materials to deal with, or it gave him some sort of advantage as a writer, as an artist. And I think that's a popular conception in general, that some sort of a mental illness will help you, <laughs> you know, be, be a, a creative person. Uh, but here, Kotzeb definitely puts his foot down firmly, saying, "No, fuck no! This is just horrible. It's nothing. It's 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 a it's it's a it's a curse. Uh, it's not uh, some some sort of a uh, uh, gift in disguise." Um, and the writing is just, I mean, again, not a wasted word. This is something that I have a problem with a lot of people, a lot of writers that I I still love, but you know this. Uh, writers that's why this book is kind of slim and hard right. to read because it's 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 condensed it's packed um i just love 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 it when there's not a wasted word there's nothing i could point to this in this book saying that sentence could have been cut or that's just a stupid way of putting it it's just nothing and I, usually i can do that with most books you know like yeah they could have been even with ostoyevsky yeah you could have done that a little better no, I'm not putting myself on you know any kind of pedestal. Just as a person, you know, as a personal opinion, as, as a reader. But here, I couldn't find any flaw like that. Anything yeah. is just like a, a crystalline structure that everything has. Uh, everything supports everything else. 
if you take one thing away, it, it won't feel totally complete. Um, but I'm still wondering about, you know, like with Heston and you even, Rob, I'm assuming that you didn't totally, completely, fully enjoy this book. Like, you know, you, I, you're not going yeah. to scream from the rooftops, God damn it, read this book, right? Well, <laughs> no, no. And, and, you know, again, you don't need to convince me that um, I, I don't need to enjoy a book to come away enthused about it. Um, but um, I suppose it is surprising to hear that you kind of uh, are enthusiastic because I know you enough that you're more on the side of what you might call maximalist novels, right. novels that have that are lighter on dialogue and scene setting and more about, you know, the, the quality of the prose and, and maybe more about ideas or, or that kind of thing. And, and mm-hmm. I, I feel like, Heston, we were again at dinner earlier this week and kind of having a similar conversation about like, right. yeah, and, and I, I have the prejudice of what if a novel starts to feel novelistic in the sense that dialogue, descriptive scene setting, dialogue, descriptive scene setting, I, I do struggle with that a bit. And, and yeah, so, when you become aware of the, of the writing itself right. as opposed to just being in the story. Right. And I, I actually, um, I've come to really look for, seek out, and seek refuge in tangents. And so this is why, you know, I'm a Proustian, and that's, you know, I tend to like guys who write seven-volume books, because yeah. I, I think, as you said, there's no wasted words. Kutseya doesn't, he chops out the tangents. He doesn't allow his writerly mind uh, to do that. And so that's just an observation, um, and, and uh you know, the other thing I wanted to point out, which I think we didn't address, a very sort of uh, formal decision that he made as a writer, is he put the book in the present tense. And so um, that's an interesting decision, a very deliberate decision any writer would make. Um, it jumps out at me. And I, I suppose if I'm thinking, you know, why would I have done that? Perhaps because he was dealing with a known quantity, a person named Dostoevsky. Um, if he had put it simply in the past tense, it might, the temptation to really equate apples to apples or apples to oranges in this sense and saying, you know, this is a quote unquote historical novel, right? So I think mm. by putting it in the present tense, he was really able to um, distance himse- distance the reader a little bit from the temptation to say, okay, I'm just getting a historical novel here about an episode yeah. of Dostoevsky. Yeah, it's definitely so not the, a historical novel. Right, right. Um, it, but here's here's the question. I'll just throw this out as well, and, and sort of shut my trap. Is what whatever whatever we think of historical novels, we tend to think of like you know things that dramatize you know whatever military battles or presidencies from centuries ago. I mean, this is a historical novel too, in a way. Really, um, I don't know. That, well, I mean, theory. it's historical in the, in, the, in the sense that it's it's you know set in 1869 in St. Yeah. Petersburg, so its location and date are very important here. Uh, and speaking as somebody who was born uh, almost exactly a hundred years after the setting of this book, in the same place, I was born in St. Petersburg. Uh, I can tell you that he captured the place very, very well. I mean, I'm familiar with some of the streets. I've walked them um, both as a child and when I came back a few years ago. Um, uh, I can smell it. I can smell his description. Those those damp cellars. I smell them. They're still there, man. Those cellars. They have a very the St. Petersburg cellars uh, have a very distinct smell. If anybody out there knows what the hell it is, please tweet me. I've been trying to find this out. I don't know if it's limestone or 
something because you know Saint Petersburg was built on a swamp. So, but but these I mean, there's a very distinct uh, odor in Saint Petersburg uh, underground, especially or when you go into hallways. And I could really smell that when I was reading this book. You know, this this underground uh, atmosphere of dankness, of coldness. Um, there's a lot of cruelty in this book. There's a lot of these. You know, the stuff that I saw on the streets in St. Petersburg, you know, drunk people in doorways, you know, during the Soviet era, at least. Um, so he, he definitely captures that, even though, you know, what I saw was 100 years later. But, you know, there's still some remnants of that for sure. Um, so in that sense, yes. But, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a novel of the mind, which is why I think a lot of people find it a little dry. Um, and I repeat, I repeat, I think this is the most important point uh, for me as a takeaway. And uh, I think I've known this for a while now, and I think I've shared this with you, Rob, as well, that the timing of the reading is really, really crucial. Um, I don't know, for instance, if I can sit down right now and reread Infinite Jest. Uh, I'm not in that frame of mind. It's not the right time. Yeah. Um, when I read it, it was the perfect time because not only were you and I, Rob, were, were sharing an apartment, we were living right around the corner from one of the major settings of the book. We were right there. We felt like we were in the book in a way. <laughs> we felt like we were part of it. Yeah. So reading it that, at that point was just exciting and, and just wonderful. And it really, really hit home for us. Yeah, I, I can't say the same thing about now. So why did this novel affect me like that now and didn't affect me, you know, seven five to ten years ago when I read it? Um, I think one of the keys for me, as I mentioned, was grief, uh, actually feeling it, not just knowing about it, but feeling it and, and connecting on that in, in that sense, you know, with Kotsea's feeling of his, uh, you know, losing his son. I. He- that was a, you, crucial, you know, so you need, the timing is everything. So maybe the reason why some people don't glom onto a book, even though it's critically acclaimed and you know it's good, is because it's just not the right time to read it. Now, I don't know how to, how to make the right time. You don't make it, it just happens. You know, it's, you can't control it. Um, so I don't know. I think, yeah. I think timing is everything in reading, you know? Well, having to talk about it in a podcast helps. Um, I don't know if I sure, that's true. read this book otherwise, right? That's you know? true, yeah. And I don't know when I'll read an, another Kutsia novel again. Um, well, I, recommend, felt... I really recommend Elizabeth Costello. I really enjoy, I remember enjoying, enjoying that, not just liking right. it for its ideas, but actually I, enjoying it. And the interesting thing is I, I actually have read Elizabeth Costello. Have you? <laughs> and... Uh, I have to say it was my least favorite of all of his books. So it's really interesting. That's hilarious, man. <laughs> yeah. Um, this it. book felt really, honestly, wordy compared to some of his other books. So um, It's the only other book I've read, so I, I really, that's, that's my only comparison. Yeah. I mean, if any of the listeners are interested in reading, um, I don't know, sort of more examples of Kutsia's work, maybe where he's, he has an even more... Um, sort of terse writing style, I would recommend Foe or uh, Age of Iron. I think Age of Iron is my favorite novel of his. Well, Foe that, was condemned by the critics. I remember reading something right. about that. Foe was not liked by the critics at all. And what about his earlier stuff? Is that his, I talk about his earlier, that's his earlier stuff, right? Uh, yeah, I think Foe is, is fairly early. Um, nice, yeah. They, uh, Wedding for the Barbarians. Um, well, that's the famous book. Really He's famous for one. that, that's right? Really good. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, and yeah. is that, does that explicitly deal with with apartheid and it does, apartheid? yeah. Mm-hmm. It's it's set in a sort of fant- almost a fantasy sort of alternate reality, 
but it, it has the these very strong sort of colonial themes. Um, yeah, I, I actually really enjoyed that one. I, I actually enjoyed reading that, that book. So. Well, it's, well, it's good <laughs> so to know. Maybe start read, there, yeah. I think I'll read that too. I'll read that. Yeah. I have to go back and read that. Because I really, I, I have a lot of respect for this writer. Even though, like we, I think we kind of came to an agreement, even though I enjoyed it more than you guys, it's hard to uh, enjoy his writing because it's, right. you know, yeah. it's, it deals with difficult stuff and it's it's austere. Kotze um, mm-hmm. himself strikes me as somebody, as a person that is, and I obviously don't know him, but, uh, you know, some interviews, et cetera, et cetera. He strikes me as, as a very cerebral kind of guy um, yeah. who's also not very funny. I, there, yeah, I, there, are, there are stories I've read where, you know, there are people who've spent, you know, who, who've known him for a long time and have ne- never seen him smile. Right? Yeah, I can so. totally believe that. I completely <laughs> so, believe that because yeah. you, can, you can sense that he doesn't, it, it works in this book because this book is so dark and it's about grief and blah, blah, blah. So it yeah. works in this book. There's really no, no room for humor there. Yeah, um, I mean, all of his books are dark, though. There's, there's, there isn't really room for humor in any of his books, <laughs> though, unless you have a very, very weird sense of humor. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, speaking of weird sense of humor, I mean, look at Nechayev. I mean, Nechayev is, uh, is, is a comical figure, right, in this book. He dresses right. as the woman to escape the police, uh, but you can see the stubble under the powder. Uh, yeah. Dostoevsky, the fictional Dostoevsky, with his you know, you know, writer's eye, really describes, of course, it's going to say describing Nechayev. But you know, it's, it's levels within levels. But he really describes him beautifully. But it's it's uh, it's a little funny. I mean, there's some, there's some it's not humorous funny, but it's um, it's almost grotesque funny. Yeah. You know. You know, um, you know Heston, to to kind of continue a bit with the 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 South African thing, we we chatted a bit, and when I was I kind of mistyped uh, Kutsea into Google, and and I got an interesting piece of data, and it said that uh, Kutsea is the tenth most common Afrikaner name. Uh, in South Africa, yeah, and so, a, yeah, so my I grew up with a family called the Kutsias who lived down the road. From oh, really? that's interesting. <laughs> and, yeah, so, so it is. It's a really common name. Mm. And, and so, is there? Can you make much of the fact that, like, and again, my association with Afrikaners actually comes from you know, as many things do for an American, from a film from Breaker Morant about the the Boer War and the the. It's a wonderful film uh, based on a play, and it hmm. you know it kind of dramatize the conflict between the Anglophone settlers and the, um, the Dutch speaking, uh, Afrikaners. Is there, once you get deep into the 20th century is, are these significant, um, distinctions to make within, you know, a South African artist that the way you might, um, in the United States where, you know, he's an African American writer or he is a, uh, a Vietnamese American writer. Is that a worthy cultural distinction to say, He's an Afrikaner descendant writer, or is that a an Americanism imposed from outside? Um, you know, the, it that is, it is definitely true of South Africa that there are those. Um, I don't want to say stereotypes, but yes, we do identify people from their backgrounds, right? I think you know could see a kind of, in my opinion, transcends all of that, right? Like this is this immensely skilled writer I, I don't know if i would classify him as a you know africana writer or well um but there he, are but there are artists working in in that sphere right who are seen as like oh they're you know the the africana right writers or you know the sort what of, about nadine gordimer for instance i don't know if she if she's considered like that or not i mean I, yeah so she 
Yeah, that's a good question. Probably more of because she's a she has a British background, right? So well, I mean, same thing I with Kotze. Kotze himself disavowed uh, this whole "I'm an African writer" type of label. He said, right. "I come from a long yeah. tradition, long European tradition, intellectual tradition." So he considers himself more yeah. of a European intellectually uh, than an African. You know that, and I that's think he's a, right about that. Yeah, you know that's fascinating, and that actually makes me think of um, Albert Camus, the, the the French writer who was actually born in. At the time, uh, French. Algeria. He was born in Algeria, and he, um, I think, this French label was was never quite comfortable with him, and and he struggled a lot with the um, the the kind of um, the the Algerian rebellion, I guess you would call it, um, that led to Algeria's independence. Um, his family had been there for a hundred years, and so that. I, I'm a francophone and and kind of into all things French, and I've always been fascinated with Europeans, French, European-born type dudes who grew up in basically North Africa in Algeria. And so, do they consider themselves African artists or Mediterranean artists? And so, that's something I'd actually wanted to ask, and I'm glad you asked it, Roman. About like, I mean, you're an African writer, aren't you? If you're yeah, born, right. I, um, yeah, I think. You know, and the, and there are writers who really um, who identify that way, right? As as Africans, even if they do are of sort of European descent. Yeah. Um, and and then I guess there are others like Kutsia who who don't agree or don't want to be categorized that way. Yeah. Um, he he wants yeah, to be an Australian writer. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, he's, he's it looks like he's he's running away from from any kind of labeling, any kind of identity. I mean, right. partly what I'm doing as well. You know, I I, I resist labels i think it's a it's probably a good thing to do if you're you know if you want to be free as a writer i mean remember he's roman he's is really, that why is that why your twitter yeah. account is zenju your zenju <laughs> no, you know why it's very simple people think it's because you know i like zen and i'm jewish no not really even though those those are, those things are true it's just actually because it sounds to me like a like an ancient chinese poet which i let you know the tang oh, okay. poets. i love those poets they're like my brethren Okay. So I, I wanted to be sort of like Zenju, the poet, the Chinese poet. It's a stupid name. <laughs> but that's that's really why I chose Zenju. I, I did know that about you. That That's actually yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, this this did make me think of a very um, sort of uh, good South African writer, a uh, bit of an older writer, Herman Charles Bosman. Have you have either of you heard of him? No. Oh. Yeah. So I would I would recommend him if you're looking for something completely different to J.M. How do you spell right? his name? Do you know how, how do you spell? Uh, so so Bosman is his, is his surname. So B O S M A N, and then Herman Charles Bosman, right? So Herman Charles. Herman Charles. Spelled. I'll look him up. Great. Awesome. So he is a very famous South African short story writer, who writes very very humorous uh, stories about sort of the the Voortrekker area. Uh, history in South Africa. So sort of very old sort of Africana stories based around Africanas and um, all of his stories sort of unmask the, the irony of the, the human condition, right? So it's his, I would recommend reading one. Maybe I think there's one of his stories is called the leopard, uh, which is a really good story. Um, writing it down, writing it down. There's a, bu there's a bunch of good ones. I'd recommend the leopard though. That's a good starting point. Awesome. Um, yeah. Herman Charles Bosman. Yeah, uh, yeah, if you need something light after reading a Kutsia novel. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and yeah you know what the strange thing is? I was, I was just, just going to, I think I mentioned this before, but 
it, it feels weird to me as far as identity goes because I almost ended up being a South African myself. I mean, I came very close to being to going to South Africa with my family. Oh wow! That's we just insane. got denied a visa because because my, when my dad went to you know we we moved from Russia to Israel and then I guess my parents were peripatetic, just couldn't stay in one place for too long. They're like, well, let's go to South Africa now. So uh, so they, they my my dad went to apply for a visa. And he was asked about this, or you know, like you, you seem to be part of the you know young communists, uh, you know, the red communists uh, organization. And he's like, well, yeah, everybody was, but I, we think because of that, because of his you know his association with <laughs> communism early in his life, yeah, we were and denied visa to South Africa. Really? But that's, we came very close. The apartheid era, or it would been very weird for me to be a South African. I must say, I would have felt very uncomfortable <laughs> yeah. and weird. But who knows? Yeah, I there is. It's such a diverse place. There, there is a very large um, Jewish population in South Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, people from all over, right? Yeah, so, yeah. My, my, my wife's uh, business partner, she's South African. Well, she's originally from South Africa. She's Jewish. Her whole family, well, part of her family is right. still there. So, yeah, it's, I, I know there's a, there's a large community there, but it just kind of feels weird to me that I, I almost ended up being... <laughs> yeah, you almost ended up South being South African. <laughs> yeah, almost, very close. Um, so... So I, I, I would have to assume without even looking at the time, we're probably getting close to our, our, our usual. Yeah, it's kind been of, about an hour. Yeah. 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 You know, is there any kind of high level, high level sort of thoughts, takeaways that folks want to kind of throw out there? I, I would say, I would say that this novel is very, very, very much worth reading if you love serious literature, but, but be in a somber mood, be, be, be sort of. You know, maybe maybe choose a, a, a cloudy month. Uh, don't don't read in the height of summer, for instance. Um, and also, uh, I think read uh, Dostoevsky's *The Demons* uh, either with this book, before or after this book, immediately. Uh, but they're they're two peas in the pod. They they go together. Um, they shed light light on each other. Um, I would recommend this book, but again, only if you're in a particular mood and it has to be kind of a grayish, um, intellectually fiery, but at the same time, emotionally heavy kind of mood. Yeah. Um, and, and I'll, yeah. I'll add that, um, this is definitely, this is true of a lot of books, but I think this is one of those books where the last chapter or the last maybe two or three chapters really, um, bring the whole thing into focus. Yes. And yes. so, you know, just like struggle on and just and keep reading read until the, that keep last reading. Keep you know, reading. third Absolutely. of the novel because it's definitely worth it. Yeah. 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 It's, short. it's not that long. Yeah, you know, it, and sort of my final thought would just be, um, you know, Roman, your comment earlier about, you know, having reading books at the right time in your life. And I and I I absolutely agree. And, and you kind of I, I guess I'm still on this mission to defend David Foster Wallace. I think you're you're ab- you're absolutely right that um, probably if you if you read him right now, uh in your late forties, um, you might be like, eh, but I, I guess my point with him and, and also with other writers, independent of, of the time you're reading them is to at least acknowledge the seriousness, which, which that writer approached that particular book. So that, that's sort of my, my defense of David Foster Wallace. And Absolutely. Other but Rob, just, yeah. just to correct the mis- misconception that it's not that I, I'm not, you know, in sort of the right phase of my life to read Foster Wallace. It's just literally not the right timing. It, I, I would, I think, I, you know, maybe in a year, maybe in 15 years, 
three months, whatever, it could be the right time to reread it again because all great books deserve to be reread. I read this book. This is a rereading for me. You know, the first time I read it, it didn't make an impact. The second time, yes, I mean, I'm doing a podcast about it, so I read it with that in mind. But uh, because of my grief, et cetera, and, you know, the timing is right, so it really yeah. struck home. So that's what I'm trying to say is that if a great book, if, if an acknowledged great book, if, you know, if, if people say it's a great book and you start reading it and you're not into it, put it aside. Let it rest there. Let it stew because at some point in your life, it might be just the right book for you to read. Um, and I, I don't mean just for intellectual pleasure. I mean for uh, a complete sort of um, emotional, spiritual, intellectual, uh, satisfying kind of, this is the right thing for me to read right now. Yeah. So now <clears throat> there's a science, there's a bit of an art to that. No, no science. There's, a, there's an art of when to read the books. But I think just don't push it. If, nothing, if something doesn't go, you don't push it. Um, it, so these books come to you in a way. So you have to be just patient. I mean, I go, I go for months at a time, uh, reading stuff that I don't really want to read, and I just, I, I get restless. I, I'm not in a great mood. Something yeah. is missing from my life, and then, boom, I'm reading the Master of Petersburg for the second time, and I'm just like, I'm loving it. I'm excited about Dostoevsky. I'm excited about the demons for the, for our next episode. That's going to be a, a doozy. Um, so timing is everything with reading. It really is. And you just can't force it. It's, and, it's kind of my, my last way. And, and uh, you know, one thing you cannot accuse the Feeling Bookish podcast is, is being lightweight. We're going to go from Kutseya to the demons. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Folks, one demon to another. T- tune, yeah. in, tune in here for substance in a, in a shallow world. Um, yeah, good luck to both of you. I'm reading a Thomas Pynchon novel next. Are you really? Oh, I need something which more lighthearted. Which one are you reading? <laughs> yeah. Which one are you reading? Uh, I'm reading Bleeding Edge, which I oh think my is God. the most recent one. Yeah. Yes, yes. You know what? I, I've, I've started a book, and just, just, I was just, just as I was saying, it didn't go for me. And I love Pynchon. I just, I just love, adore Pynchon. Um, and I just and couldn't get the absolute opposite thing to, to Kutsia, right? Like right, this, right. With, with this, yeah. this, this, uh, really inventive language that just, yeah, just the like, zany, frenetic. Yeah. That just uh, kind of bursts pace, at the yeah. seams. And, and, but my point is that I couldn't, I couldn't get into bleeding edge. So I let it aside and it's still on my shelves. It's looking at me, it's winking at me and saying, Hey, I'm here. And I will get back to it. It's just has to be the right time, you know? And, it, mm-hmm. and I, I know that, um, I think. Keston, you and I talked about, um, I mentioned that Roman was a huge Pynchon fan and that I think you were like still on the edge with, was it Mason and Dixon? But I know Roman loved that as well. I remember, I remember when you were reading it in Santa Ana, California, Roman, years ago. Well, Rob, again, speaking of timing, thank you yeah. for pointing that out. With that novel, I was living in, uh, on the East Coast. I started reading this novel and then I moved. No, you were, you were in California. I was with you. No, no I, I was still reading it then. It's a big book. Oh. But I started, <laughs> yes, I started on the East Coast and I, I drove, I drove from, uh, from Boston to LA and we went South first and I had this book on the dashboard as we were crossing the Mason Dixon line <laughs> and I was, I'll never until I die. unless I get, you know, dementia or something, I will never forget this <laughs> moment of looking at the book and looking at the sign, the Mason Dixon line, looking at the book on the dashboard and, and just getting goosebumps. Because I was just so into the book and I was in the middle of reading it, you know. So timing again, timing oh, is there you go. everything. Yeah. You know, it's on the bookshelf. I guess I'll have to, I'll well, have to save it for a road trip. <laughs> one last, one last uh, uh, yeah. throw at you is um, is um, 
what's the other oh my god what's the other book that he that other big one uh, uh daylight rainbow no 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 that's against the day against the day ah. against oh, the right. day yeah, yeah. is even better than mason dixon mason dixon i think yeah. it's my favorite it's, uh pension against the day it's, it's, also book after mason dixon. <laughs> it's also dude it's a huge one obviously but yeah. uh, it's it's so inventive and so funny and uh oh, they all are but yeah i'm just saying Nice. Nice. Well, um, it's been fun as usual. And uh, it's always great, uh, Heston, when you kind of jump from behind the the soundboard and and join us Uh, from the attic. This is a little a little known (laughs) fact. Our our sound engineer is in this obscure attic hovel. Like uh, like some sort of Dostoevsky character. Yeah, kind of. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah, which is why my voice is bouncing around. <laughs> and he's you know he's no, deep. notes from above ground. <laughs> he's you know and he's uh, spitting distance from the the old Willamette River, so it's a very exotic uh, location. <laughs> nice. So yeah, well, thanks for having me. It was it was fun. Yeah. So um, we'll wrap it up. And again, you heard it here from Roman that um, start reading the Demons by Dostoevsky. That's our next target. Uh, hopefully we'll we'll rejoin you guys in a one of the a greatest month. books of all time, you guys. One of the greatest books. You gotta read it. If you haven't yeah. read it, gotta read it. Gotta read it. Gotta read it. So there there's the challenge. The gauntlet's been thrown. Uh, so that's about it. Uh, again, check out Roman Sivkin at Zenju on Twitter. I'm Robert Fay One. And also I gotta throw a plug t- to myself. Check out Three Quarks Daily tomorrow morning. There'll be a uh, uh, a new article from me. A so. new article from Rob, yay! Yeah. Awesome. So that's it. Uh, Cheers, guys. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. And uh, yeah, man, it's been fun. All righty. Bye-bye. Bye.